You're listening to What the Dev, the weekly podcast of SD Times. And now, here's Jenna Sargent, news editor of SD Times. In this week's episode, I'm speaking with Atlassian's head of platform, Mike Tria, about microservices, how to manage them, and the role automation plays in all of it. And now, here's Mike Tria. Hi, I'm Mike Tria. I am with Atlassian, and I run engineering for our platform. Great to have you. So in this episode, I want to talk about the role that automation plays in managing microservices. But before we get into that, I think it might be helpful to our listeners to give kind of a brief high-level overview of what microservices are and how they're used. Yeah, let's do that. So once upon a time, there were monoliths, big, giant, honking pieces of software, uh, some of them millions of lines of code long. Um, as the cloud computing environment evolved, we realized that it is easier sometimes for teams to build in small units, small units that can deploy faster, small units that compile faster, small units that do a single job. And now that you've got the ability in the cloud to spin up and spin down capacity at will, it's very easy to have these very, very small services, thus microservices. I'd say they've been a big deal for, geez, probably maybe about 10 years they really popped up, but Really in the last five years have they gained a fair amount of notoriety. And at Atlassian, we use them pretty heavily. So with microservices, I imagine there's a lot more to keep track of. Do developers spend a lot of time on maintaining microservices or do they kind of just create new ones as they're needed rather than like changing old older ones? Yeah, there's that's a really good question. And I found at least when I look at my own company. And when I talk to peers, there are two schools of thought. One school of thought is try to keep the number of microservices to a minimum such that, you know, to your point, developers don't have to think about scale and uh, security and all of those things every time they're spinning up a new microservice to keep them, to keep them small. That works fine for a limited number of use cases and specific domains, because what will happen is those microservices will become large. You'll end up with, you know, as they say, a distributed monolith. So I think in very specific use cases, I think that's totally fine. When you're scaling rapidly, though, I found most companies that do this well, they do let developers just spin up microservices at will. But the key is make it really easy, right? So if every time you're building some new microservice, you have to think about all of those concerns about security, where are you going to host it? Um, what's the IAM user and role that you need access to? What other services can it talk to? If developers need to figure all that stuff out every time, then you're going to have a real scaling challenge. So the key is through automating those capabilities away. Make it such that you could spin up microservices without having to do all of those things. Um, some companies have what are the equivalent of a PaaS or a platform as a service that essentially abstracts away some of the operational concerns of a microservice. What goes into kind of setting up that automation? Yeah. Well, um, I think for starters, you had to have built a bunch of microservices first to kind of know what you're getting into. Um, For Atlassian, let's see, if I go back in time here, back to early 2016, I remember this very clearly. We had about, I think, 50 to 60 microservices total. And it was very simple times. I remember we we could actually write on a Confluence page because we were implementing SOC 2 at the time. I had every microservice written on a Confluence page. 
And we had the owners of every microservice, like what team they were, whether it passed SOC 2 yet, which was what we were working on, and uh, what the on-call alias was for that team in case we had to page somebody. And I remember at that time, the team, we had this long table and we kept adding columns to the table. And the columns were things like, when was the last time a performance test was run against it? Or another column was, you know, what are all the services that depend on it? What are all the services it depends on? What like reliability tier is it? You know, for uptime, is it like tier one where it needs very high uptime, tier two where it needs less? And we just ex- kept expanding those columns. As the months spent by, we finished the SOC 2 project, by the way, we did it um, in, pretty, in pretty good time. We kept adding rows to that table. And I remember when it hit 100 and we said, this is not going to be maintainable for long. We kept adding rows and we kept adding columns to this table. And so what we did is we set up a project to essentially take the capabilities we had in this single confluence page and turn it into a very simple tool that we built. And that tool was Microscope. So the idea was we would have a system where when you build a microservice, essentially registers it into a central repository that we have. That repository has a list of all of our services. It has the owners, it has the reliability tiers, and anyone within the company can just search and look up uh, a service. And we made the tool pretty pluggable so that when we have new capabilities that we're adding to our service. So an example is recently, you know, we're doing a lot of things to support more enterprise customers. So there's new forms of compliance and controls that we have to do. Well, those are more, you know, columns on the table. So they become capabilities for services that we add to our tool. Over time, as the number of services we've grown has increased, we now can do reports across our services and detect which service hasn't run source clear in the last you know, two weeks, which one doesn't have it enabled, things like that. We can go and check across our services. I would say for a company that's getting started on microservices, start small, grab something off the shelf. If you look at some things like Envoy do, they encapsulate and abstract some of those capabilities away for your service, which is good. But you know, if you're just getting started on how to automate your services and how to run it, start really small, start like we did, candidly, get to know your stuff, Get figure out what you actually need. If you need to really think about many forms of reliability, security, performance, et cetera, start small and then grow it as you grow. So when you talk about like starting small, do you think that means that a company should just kind of get the tool they need for the moment rather than looking down the road? Or do you think they should also be kind of considering what they want a year down the road, five years down the road? Mm, Yeah, I would say it's a different place. The world's different now than when it was when we started on this. Five years ago, there really wasn't much of anything around managing microservices. There really just wasn't much. There's some stuff out there now. Honestly, Kubernetes wasn't even really a thing when we got started. And that can help a lot, especially around the networking side. If I were, so I did startups before Atlassian, and I remember that struggle between how far ahead you go in your architecture when you get started versus how much you think you're going to have to rebuild as you go, right? Like it always feels bad as from, a, from an engineering perspective to build something that you know you'll need to tear down, let's say in six months. I would say if you're just getting started though, it's, it's way too easy with microservices to overdo it right at the start. Honestly, I think that's the mistake more companies make getting started. They go too heavy on microservices right at the start. They throw on too much on the compute layer, too much like, you know, service mesh, Kubernetes, proxy, et cetera. People go too, too far. And so what happens is they get bogged down in process, in bureaucracy, in bureaucracy, in too much configuration when people just want to build features really, really fast. I would almost tell folks to start with a monolith 
honestly, these days, just get started, but have it be really easy to break it up into microservices once you need to. Um, the tools are there. Truly, microservices are as much an organizational construct as they are an architectural construct, right? So the companies that do them well have it where a single team owns a microservice. If you've got tons of microservices and you just have like five developers, you're probably going a bit too far. Yeah, that, that was interesting. Like the, the concept of ownership, like do you recommend each developer if they have microservices maintaining those themselves or should there be like kind of a central person that's responsible for maintenance of all of those? Oh, unlike a team? So uh, I'll give you some concrete numbers for what we're doing to help make it a little bit more clear. Lassian has a bit over 3,000 developers and we have about 1,400 microservices. So if you assume we have teams of about, call it five to 10 developers, you'll end up with every team owning you know, average two or so microservices, two or three. Um, what we found works best is to not have a single individual own a microservice. What we found is it's best to have the team own the microservice. And then that team is mapped to a pager alias, either in something like Ops Genie or PagerDuty for, for management and maintenance. At least for what we found, it takes a team, right? Like in the equivalent of it takes a village, it takes a team to keep a microservice healthy, to upgrade it, to make sure it's checking in on its dependencies, on its rituals around things like reliabilities and reliability and SLO. So I think the good practice is have a team on it. The anti-pattern is to have a microservice split amongst teams. That's the anti-pattern, right? So if you find that there are two different teams, both contributing code into a microservice, that's dangerous because one of those teams is actually doing the rituals for that microservice. They're checking the alerts every week. They're checking the logs. They're going through the dashboards. They're talking with other teams about how to evolve it. The more teams you have contributing code is bad on that thing. So I would say, don't need one person. I think you'll struggle with scale if you just try and say, this is the one person, because then that person can never go on vacation, which would be terrible, um, but rather have it be the onus of the team. Got it. That makes sense. Since you've been in this microservices game for a while now, is are there any challenges that you kind of have run into on that journey that you would kind of caution people to try to avoid? Oh, how much time do we have? <laughs> I've run into every problem you can imagine. Um, so I would say we've run into every problem, but we've also come out the other end of many of them. I'll rattle off one or two I think are the big ones. One is polyglot. Uh, the initial attraction to microservices from Atlassian was the idea that, hey, I can code in whatever language I want, use whatever stack I want. It's my service. I can do what I want. And we had services written in Go, Kotlin, Java, Python, Scala, you name it. There's languages I've never even heard of that we had microservices written in, which from an autonomy perspective and letting those teams run was really great, right? Individual teams could all run off on their own and go and build their services. And the idea was there's just APIs between everything, just REST APIs. So it shouldn't matter what the programming language is. It shouldn't matter until it does. And this is the trap, right? Let's say some team, you know, starts to pick up another microservice and it's in a different language and it's a different stack. You now have a problem of, you know, language and service transferability across your teams. You don't have it anymore because you have every team with different languages and different stacks. So you've now lost a form of nimbleness in your business. Second, you know, earlier in our conversation, we talked about some teams don't want to just build new microservices every time they want to add to them. And so 
you start to need lots of Scala developers, as an example, to run the Scala services because they're all written in Scala because you can't build new ones written in a different language. So you run into that problem too. We found we've had to standardize a bit more, not down to one language, but let's say standardize down to like two or three languages that we can do for all of our services to help from the service proliferation. The second thing I think is um, that the extent to how much the network can do for you. Something like service discovery, early on um, and Atlassian, all of our services found each other just through DNS. You would reach another service through a domain name. And what that did is it put a lot of pressure on our own internal networking systems, specifically DNS. And DNS has its own issues with TTL and every other issue that DNS has. I've probably run into every DNS issue you could possibly imagine. Um, they're no fun. They're very, very hard to debug as well. Moving away from something like standard REST and networking and moving on to more service lookup through a mesh and using things like gRPC um, are really, really positive things, I think, for the world. Um, if I were to throw a third one on there, it's um, standardizing APIs. Just saying that you have REST and APIs between your services, it's fine, but that's really just the very base layer. How you refer to things like entities really matters. If you have the concept of a user through your system and you have a bunch of microservices that all talk about users, if every single one of them is expecting user to look different, you're going to have a hard time when you're trying to build a product or an application, trying to stitch these things together. You're going to have a very hard time. It's going to feel like you're dealing with 1,400 different businesses as opposed to one. All these point to like the same, I'd say, root problem, which is consistency. Even amongst, and I've got 1,400 of these things, we are always pushing for more consistency between our microservices such that we can do things more cohesively across the world. I know we're running out of time here, but before I let you go, what would you say is a key point for developers to take away from this conversation when it comes to uh, microservices and automation? Yeah. Um, as you scale, automation is going to be necessary for you to continue to support a microservices architecture. That automation is going to give you a few things. One, it's going to give you the ability to scale because you're going to actually be able to continue to create microservices without a burden being placed on developers. Secondly, it's going to give you reliability. The more you encapsulate reliability concerns at each individual microservice, your whole system actually becomes more reliable than if it were an individual monolith. And then lastly, you gain an organizational nimbleness and speed. Each team can build microservices at their own pace for their own domain, um, hopefully not using whatever random language that they want, but in a somewhat consistent way such that your organization can now move at the speed of every one of your teams. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks for having me, Jenna. Thank you all for listening. Until next time, I've been Jenna Sargent, and you've been listening to What the Dev. 